What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. This summer, click into cordless power with Memorial Day savings at the Home Depot. Tackle more than half an acre of grass with the convenience and gas-like power of the Ryobi 40-volt battery-powered mower. And keep your flower beds looking fresh with the 40-volt cordless string trimmer. Then clear leaves and debris with the 40-volt leaf blower. No cords, no gas, no hassle. Click into Memorial Day savings happening now at the Home Depot and on homedepot.com. How doers get more done. Guess what, Mango? What's that, Will? So you remember back in our episode on Hawaii, we, we talked about this year-long simulation by a group of brave scientists and what they endured on the side of Mount Aloha, right? Yeah, they were trying to simulate what life might be like on Mars. That's right. So physicist Christiane Heinecke, she wrote this great piece about the experience in Scientific American. And I'd only read a little bit about it before, so it was fascinating to read this piece. But the experiment was to test a bunch of things. Like, they obviously know that a real mission to Mars would be much more complicated than surviving in a dome on the side of a volcano, you know, especially when that volcano is in Hawaii. Now, as a side note, this is not the volcano that's been erupting recently. That might have mm-hmm. made it a little bit more of a difficult experiment. But they did want to see what it would do to people if they were isolated for a year in a pretty barren environment and really only able to depend on each other. Yeah, I mean, there's actually a term for that type of scenario. It's called ICE, which stands for Isolated, Confined, and Extreme. But the thing that struck me was the team they assembled for this mission was incredible. Yeah, it really makes you think about the different types of skills you'd need if you sent a group like this to Mars. For this simulation, they had a pilot and a flight controller that served as their engineer. There was a physician, an astrobiologist, a soil scientist— They even had an architect focused on space habitats. I mean, talk about an interesting job. Mm -hmm. And then there was Heineke, who was a geophysicist. Yeah, it's so varied. It's awesome. Well, there's a short bit from her piece that I thought was worth reading, and here's what she says. She said, Cut off from civilization, we were dependent on ourselves and on each other. We had to perform any work that needed doing and fix anything that broke. All we had was the material contained in the storage unit dubbed the sea can. The nearest supermarket was months away. We received news from Earth electronically with a 20-minute delay. That's about how long it takes for signals to travel the maximum distance of 240 million miles between the two planets. To be honest, it took weeks for me to realize just what I'd gotten into. Yeah, I mean, it's impossible to imagine what that would be like, but that hasn't stopped us from being incredibly curious about the experience. And I'm actually sure that many of our listeners know there's this new uh, podcast from Gimlet called The Habitat, and it's about this very simulation. 
Yeah, and you know, it's just one of many recent projects, both in fiction and in nonfiction, focused on what this journey to Mars or even living on Mars might actually be like. And it's definitely starting to feel like we might witness humans landing or living on Mars in our lifetime. So in today's episode, we thought we'd explore questions like, who will be the first to get to Mars? Why are we so consumed with getting there? And how will humans survive once we do get there? So let's dive in. Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Part-Time Genius. I'm Will Pearson, and as always, I'm joined by my good friend Mangesh Hatikader. And on the other side of the soundproof glass, wearing a shirt that reads, In Musk We Trust, Mars or Bust. <laughs> That's our friend and producer, Tristan McNeil. And Mango, I've got to say, Tristan must know a guy because I'm guessing this is yet another <laughs> of his custom printed shirts, right? Actually, you know, I, I've seen that one advertised online. There, there's just so much excitement right now about the prospect of going to Mars, and it does kind of look like Elon Musk might be the guy to get us there. Well, and Tristan's definitely not the only one putting his trust in Musk. You know, after doing <laughs> some research for today's show, I've got to say it's not such a bad bet. You know, the SpaceX program has made some serious strides toward getting mankind to the red planet within our lifetime. But SpaceX is hardly the only game in town. I mean, there are plenty of other companies, not to mention countries, that have their eyes set on launching the first manned mission to Mars. And their goal now seems closer than it ever has before. So with all that excitement in the air, I thought it'd be fun to kind of take stock of all these competing Mars missions and hopefully give us a clearer picture, not only of who will make it to Mars first and when that might actually happen, but really why we're all so dead set on getting there in the first place. Yeah, so why don't we start by giving a little perspective on just how much public interest there currently is in going to Mars. So historically, there's always been this uptick in applicants anytime a new milestone starts to look achievable. So if you think about like 1978, that's the year the Voyager mission set out on its tour of the solar system. NASA actually set a record with 8,000 applicants. And that record stood for nearly 40 years until the agency's most recent call for new hires. You know, I was actually going to ask how often NASA accepts applications, because if I'm not mistaken, it's not a yearly thing, right? No, so they typically bring on a new class of astronauts every few years or so, and the most recent class began applying in late 2015, and the time before that was in late 2011. But this most recent crop of applicants was the biggest yet. More than 18,000 people applied to be part of NASA's wow. new class, and that totally destroys the previous record by more than 10,000 people. Which is pretty crazy. I mean, there must have been more disappointed applicants than ever before. And I, I can't imagine NASA's in need of tens of thousands of astronauts at <laughs> you know, one time. Yeah, definitely not. In fact, uh, the newest class consists of just 12 people. There are five women and seven men. And even that is like three times the number of people needed for the four-person crew NASA has in mind for its first Mars mission. So 18,000 people, which is weeded down to 12 people, and then from that, only four will end up going on the mission. I mean, it's clearly more than enough interest out there, but did you get any sense of like where all of this is coming from? I, I know we had the Matt Damon movie just called The Martian, and it was a big hit, but there's got to be more to it than that, right? So I know it sounds strange, but The Martian's actually a great example of a kind of cross-pollination between spaceflight and pop culture that's taken place in the last few years. 
And it's actually no coincidence that the movie premiered just two months before NASA announced its latest call for astronauts. Like, the agency actually consulted a lot for the makers of that movie, largely because it saw the film as a way to generate more excitement for a future Mars mission. And if you took any marketing classes in college, which I I think you might have taken Mm -hmm. one or two, you'll remember one of the golden rules of marketing, and that's, you know, nothing stokes the public interest like the promise of growing space potatoes fertilized with your own feces. I think that was like rule number seven, <laughs> yeah, if I'm not it's mistaken. Marketing 101, rule seven. So. Right. <laughs> but the Martian isn't the only new recruitment tool to benefit NASA in recent years. Like the one that's actually helped the most is social media. So when NASA called for new hires back in 2011, the shuttle program had just ended and this mission to Mars seemed too far off to put much stock in. But even then, like, NASA's crop of applicants that year was still strong. It was, I think, around, like, 6,000 total. But clearly something happened between then and the record-setting response that we saw in 2015. And so you're saying that really was just social media? Yeah, I mean, I think it played a big role. So between 2011 and 2015, the number of American adults who used at least one social media platform grew by 15%. And, you know, you can bet NASA took notice of that growth. So according to NASA spokeswoman Stephanie Shearholtz, she says, uh, we made a concerted outreach effort that incorporated social media like never before. So all of a sudden you have like astronauts tweeting pictures, uh, you know, from their training sessions. You've got these like live streamed rocket launches and YouTube videos where astronauts on the ISS are like cutting their nails and showing you how they take showers. It's pretty amazing. Yeah, and I know we also liked watching Chris Hadfield's cover of Space Oddity, and he, he obviously did that from space. Mm-hmm. And remember, we had him on the show, such a nice guy. But so nice. In a way, it feels like social media made astronauts cool again, kind of like they had been in the early days of the space program. Yeah, I mean, the public had never gotten such an intimate and real-time look at the life and work of astronauts before that. And ultimately, it sparked this like new generation of people who were super passionate. Well, and so now we've covered a few factors behind the current space boom. I feel like we should talk about some of the major players that are hoping to capitalize on this interest. So we've already mentioned Elon Musk and the SpaceX venture. You know, they've set this rather lofty goal of sending a manned rocket to Mars by 2024. Mm-hmm. And whether that actually happens, it, it, I'd say it's still pretty much up in the air at this point. Yeah, I mean, they've been testing the world's first uh, partially reusable rockets, which could cut launch costs by as much as 30%. And obviously make the missions to Mars much more feasible. But while the tests have been this huge success, like there's still a lot of room for improvement. And it's tough to imagine making that much progress in just, I don't know, five or six years. Well, you do have to remember that Musk has a secret weapon for getting to Mars, and that's his so-called BFR, what he calls the big effing rocket. And (laughs) this would be this massive 350 feet tall rocket, and it's propelled by 31 smaller methane-fueled rockets. Now, Once again, the whole system would be completely reusable. So the idea is that the BFR would send 100 people to Mars aboard a detachable spaceship. Now that you've got the system's rocket booster, that would just detach and then land back on Earth and be reused again and again. I mean, when we watched that recent test that you did, it was just amazing to watch them land. And it would be really cool if they could manage to pull it off. But I'm curious, like, why does Musk want to go to Mars so badly? Like, what does he know that we don't? Well, I don't know. I was trying to think about that, too. And, and and more likely than not, he's just eager for humans to explore more of that final frontier that we've heard so much about. And I don't know, you can kind of be the judge, though. Here's, here's one of Musk's statements on the importance of a mission to Mars. He says, you want to wake up in the morning and think the future is going to be great. 
And that's what being a spacefaring civilization is all about. It's about believing in the future and thinking that the future will be better than the past. And I can't think of anything more exciting than going out there and being among the stars. History is going to bifurcate along two directions. One path is we stay on Earth forever, and eventually there will be some extinction event. The alternative is to be a spacefaring civilization and a multi-planet species. Huh. So, I mean, it sounds like there are two ideas at play for Musk here. Like, one is exploration for the sake of exploration, right? It's like this desire to, like, see the cosmos and learn new things. And the other is this idea of self-preservation that, like, you know, if you take a long enough timeline, something bad's bound to happen on this planet. So it's in our own best interest to set up shop on another one sooner rather than later. Well, that sounds right. And I think there's merit to both of those ways of thinking. But, you know, not all Mars hopefuls have such clear-cut motivations. For instance, you've heard of Mars One, right? Yeah. You know, it's this private, nonprofit Dutch, Dutch organization. Right. Yeah, yeah. And so they aim to colonize Mars by, I think, 2031. And unlike other missions that we're talking about today, Mars One isn't worried about bringing space colonists back to their home planet. Mars One would actually just be this one-way trip. I mean, I've heard about this, obviously, and it's super controversial. I, I, I remember reading a study from MIT where scientists analyzed the proposed plan, and they concluded that all the Mars One astronauts would actually be dead within 68 days. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> I would not consider that a successful mission if that's what's happened. <laughs> And all the money that would be spent for those 68 days. But, yeah. And, you know, if you look at their initial proposal, it was super unrealistic. I mean, for one thing, the Mars One team isn't developing its own technology. They're, they're really just planning to use whatever the other aerospace companies come up with. And they're estimating it would only cost $6 billion to send four people to Mars. And I say only $6 billion. That sounds like a ton of money. But mm -hmm. it's really a low number when you consider the Apollo program. They spent about $140 billion to send 12 people to the moon. Wait, so not only are they pinning all their hopes on using someone else's tech, but they're also hoping to score that tech for, like, bargain basement deals. That's exactly right. <laughs> but you know what else is crazy about this is that, you know, Mars One hasn't even secured that lowball funding that they're hoping for. And this is where it really just gets even nuttier. Apparently, the plan is to finance the mission through a reality TV show and a what? series of documentaries <laughs> that would follow the crew through their training and... This is, you know, all of that training leading up to going to Mars. It, it honestly, it just sounds like the worst plan ever. <laughs> I mean, I can't see how a show like that would work unless, like, they were trying to make the first boy band assembled on Mars or, oh, I, I yeah. guess, send some Jersey housewives to Mars. Like, that feels like a show I'd watch. But No, you're right. I'd, I'd watch that, too. <laughs> you know. But, like, what if the show tanks as they're up there and people just lose interest? Like, once that funding dries up, does the crew just, like, end up there on their own? I mean, I guess so. And and it, it turns out that's just one of the many flaws in the Mars One plan. But, <laughs> but it actually hasn't stopped more than 200,000 people from applying for the privilege to be, as Pacific what? Standards put it, among the first humans to die on Mars. I just thought that was great. I mean, I don't know who wants that title, but I, I can imagine how some, like, I guess, daredevil astronauts might be really into it. Yeah, you know, I think about it kind of like it is with cloning. I mean, if we ever find a way to bring back the dinosaurs, there's going to be somebody that's going to be the first to get eaten by the dinosaurs, you know? And I don't think I'd want my biggest claim to fame to be that I was the first person ever eaten by a T-Rex. But, you know, maybe there's a certain kind of appeal there for some people. Yeah, someone wants that. But, uh, 
I do think we should just like table this for another time because I think it'd be fun for another episode. But right now, let's talk a little bit about NASA's plan for getting to Mars, as well as some of the other challenges that are definitely going to crop up. All right, that sounds like a plan. But first, let's take a quick break. This summer, click into Memorial Day savings at the Home Depot and get after those outdoor projects with some serious cordless power from Ryobi. Tackle more than half an acre of grass with the convenience and gas-like power of the Ryobi 40-volt battery-powered mower. Leaves and debris are no match for the 40-volt power of the Ryobi leaf blower. No cords, no gas, no hassle. Tidy up those flower beds and keep your walkways looking sharp with Ryobi's 40-volt cordless string trimmer. Yard work, done and done. Click into Memorial Day savings happening now at your cordless power source, The Home Depot. Shop now at The Home Depot or homedepot.com. How doers get more done. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union. A savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. You're listening to Part-Time Genius, and we're talking about the who, when, why, and how of humankind's first mission to Mars. All right, Mango, so we've covered one promising program and one maybe not-so-promising program from the private sector. But now let's talk about the organization that probably stands the best chance of making it to Mars first, and that, of course, is NASA. Yeah, so NASA's current plan is to get humans into low Mars orbit by the early 2030s. And then they want to have a crew actually land on the planet's surface before the end of that decade. And to make that happen, the agency is hard at work, like testing this equipment they hope will get humans there and back. I'm sure you're probably wondering what type of stuff they're going to use. Like, one of the most promising pieces of hardware that they're working on is called the Space Launch System, SLS. It's this new rocket meant to propel humans and cargo out of Earth's orbit. So this is, I guess, kind of like NASA's answer to the to the big effing rocket, right? Yeah, exactly like Musk. And, and for the crew itself, NASA is testing its Orion capsule, which is meant to lay the groundwork for even larger deep space exploration vehicles. It's the kind of thing that could conceivably support a full crew for the entire 140 million mile trip. And that's, you know, the distance it is to get to Mars. 
All right, so it sounds like no matter how you slice it, we're a good, what, 15 to 20 years away from landing a human on Mars. And that's all assuming that research doesn't hit a brick wall along the way. But given that timeline, who do you think is going to get there first? So NASA obviously has the, you know, the best track record when it comes to spacefaring. And they've got, like, the technical know-how. They've got, you know, the crew. But, like, the biggest potential stumbling block is funding. And the space program's budget ebbs and flows with each administration. So even if NASA knows what it's doing, there's zero guarantee that the money will be there to carry out the mission when the time comes. And of course, you know, NASA is totally aware of its status as like a political football. So that's why the agency has been going all out on these marketing efforts, which we talked about earlier. Yeah, and I know those funding concerns are a big part of why some people consider SpaceX to be the front runner. And Elon Musk's pockets might not be as deep as the government's, but, you know, over the past several years, he's definitely proven himself a lot more willing to put up the cash for space research than Congress has. But it is worth keeping in mind that a large chunk of SpaceX revenue is thanks to its own contracts with NASA. Mm-hmm. So if NASA's budget gets slashed, then you know there's no guarantee that SpaceX will have the cash needed to fill that gap. So in a sense, the best chance of getting to Mars in the next couple of decades might actually be if SpaceX and NASA were to team up and, and maybe pool those resources. Yeah, I mean, it would be fascinating to watch if that happens. And I actually think there's a decent chance it could happen as we get closer to their planned launch dates. But, you know, we're getting a little ahead of ourselves here. There are still all kinds of problems that need to be worked out before we can send anyone to Mars. And that includes challenges both for the journey itself as well as when we get there. Yeah, I mean, speaking of that, I was actually reading about some of the physical strains that astronauts have to deal with when when they're there, and it's not a pretty picture. Uh-huh. I mean, the G-forces alone would be insane. So much so, in fact, that some researchers have suggested removing the appendix and the gallbladder of any of these Mars-bound crew members ahead of time. I mean, just to avoid the organs rupturing from all the pressure changes. Uh-huh. Well... I mean, you could think about that, which is crazy, but also the psychological effects of such a long trip, like the voyage to Mars will take about four or five months each way. I mean, that's an awful lot of time to spend in close quarters with, you know, just a handful of people. And that's while moving at the speeds you were talking about. Um, I even read this one study that suggested that, like, the prolonged exposure to cosmic radiation might actually mess with the astronauts' brains. So mess with them how exactly? Yeah, this is based on research out of University of California, and it was one of several studies meant to examine the neurological effects of sending people on long outer space missions. It was to get an idea of what these cosmic rays might do. The researchers irradiated a bunch of lab mice with particles found in space, and the dosage they used was actually equivalent to what a human might experience on like a 10 to 30 day mission. And then the mice underwent a series of behavioral tests. And as you might expect, the irradiated mice performed much, much worse on these tests than the non-irradiated ones. But stranger still, when the scientists actually dissected the mice two weeks later, they found that the radiation had effectively pruned the mice's brain cells. I mean, it's crazy. Many of the branches that allow the brain cells to communicate with one another were just straight up gone. Oh, it's just terrifying. So, so would the same thing happen in a human brain? 
I mean, that's the thing, right? There's every reason to think so. And the biggest mystery, like once you know that, is that we don't know how these missing brain cells might actually impact a human's behavior. Like, it's doubtful that these cosmic rays would actually prove life-threatening, but they could jeopardize the mission in all sorts of other ways. Like, researchers worry that the pruned brain cells might reduce someone's ability to respond to new situations and, you know, come up with creative solutions for things. It would obviously be a huge problem when exploring a different planet. So it's weird because this is the first I've heard about this. And I know we've obviously sent plenty of people into space by now. So what about the astronauts who landed on the moon and came back? Like, did why didn't they have brain damage or, you know, the people that are on the International Space Station and they're there months at a time? Yeah, it's a really good question. So I looked into that, too. But, you know, the missions to the moon only lasted a few days, whereas like the voyage to Mars would take about 150 days. So we're talking a whole different experience and level of exposure here. And while it's definitely true that astronauts have spent that kind of time aboard the ISS, the station's actually positioned below the Earth's magnetosphere, which means that it's shielded from, I guess, most forms of uh, space radiation. So I'm curious what the solution would actually be, or is, is it just as simple as like wrapping the Mars ship in tinfoil or something like that to help <laughs> shield it? I mean, I wish it was that easy. Like the truth is that like trying to take anything that's big enough or strong enough to shield and block that amount of cosmic radiation would actually make the ship way too heavy to fly. So instead, researchers are trying to figure out a solution for the astronauts themselves. Like the current hope is that they can find a new drug that would hopefully block the radiation before it can reach the brain. Well, and if you think about it, this is only the voyage to Mars that we're talking about. So once the astronauts actually reach the red planet, they'll have a whole new list of problems to, you know, to kind of figure out. And I don't know if you've noticed this or not, Mango, but Mars isn't the most hospitable planet in the galaxy. <laughs> and there's no breathable air. There's no food. The planet's, you know, protective atmosphere. It burned away eons ago, which, you know, basically means we'd have to contend with all that cosmic radiation even after we'd landed. And, you know, there is some water on Mars, but even that is mostly inaccessible. Yeah, so I, I was reading about this concept in aerospace research called ISRU. It's called uh, In-Situ Resource Utilization. And the concept is pretty simple. It's, it's basically the science of mining and utilizing the natural resources that already exist on other worlds. So, you know, rather than dragging everything we need to survive along with us, you make use of what's there. And ISRU is really the key to making a sustainable colony on Mars because the planet really does have oxygen and water. It's just that they're locked away in this icy Martian soil. So if they're locked away, what, what do we do to get them out? Well, right now, NASA is hoping to use microwave beams to heat the soil enough to break the chemical bonds that have trapped the water. So as one NASA researcher explained, if you think about a cubic foot of this dirt and you heat it just a little bit, a few hundred degrees, then you'll actually get off about two pints of water, like two water bottles you take to the gym. Which makes sense, right? It's really cool. And once we've mastered the art of making water, then we can zap the breathable gases like oxygen, nitrogen, argon, right out of the water using electrolysis. And the best part is that all this could be accomplished with the power generated from a few solar panels. It would be a pretty self-sustaining system as long as the planet's sun-obscuring dust storms don't last too long. Well, and that's an ingenious solution because if you think about it, there's no way we could bundle up everything that we need to survive and just ship them all to Mars. And you know, the heavier something is, the more expensive it is to send into orbit. And you think about that, you've got a spaceship full of people and equipment, that's going to be heavy and costly enough. And 
That's without adding this really almost like this indefinite supply of food and water into the mix. That's true. But really, food's a whole different headache in and of itself. And there's some promising solutions. But before we get into them, let's take another quick break. This summer, click into Memorial Day savings at the Home Depot and get after those outdoor projects with some serious cordless power from Ryobi. Tackle more than half an acre of grass with the convenience and gas-like power of the Ryobi 40-volt battery-powered mower. Leaves and debris are no match for the 40-volt power of the Ryobi leaf blower. No cords, no gas, no hassle. Tidy up those flower beds and keep your walkways looking sharp with Ryobi's 40-volt cordless string trimmer. Yard work, done and done. Click into Memorial Day savings happening now at your cordless power source, The Home Depot. Shop now at The Home Depot or homedepot.com. How doers get more done. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of. A degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. All right, Mango, so why is it so hard to get a decent meal on Mars? You know, apart from the fact that it's outside the delivery zone of, I, I think, most of the pizza places. <laughs> I'd, I'd been, I've been saving that joke up for a while. I hope you enjoyed it. <laughs> well, I mean, it goes back to what we've already mentioned, which is that the air on Mars is poisonous and the terrain's too cold and sterile to sustain vegetation. So clearly we'll have to set ISRU aside on this one and actually send some food from home instead. But with Mars being like 140 million miles away, those snack runs will have to be limited to like every few years. So with that in mind, NASA's been looking at ways of growing vegetables in space for a while now. But despite what you would have seen on the Martian, potatoes actually aren't on the menu. Instead, astronauts aboard the ISS have actually been cultivating the first plant grown in space, which is a red romaine lettuce named Outregis. Did you say outrageous? Yeah, regious. Yeah, yeah. I'm <laughs> There's glad a pun in there. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad they're taking this so seriously. So, so what are they using to grow this stuff? Though, is it, it like a hydroponic setup or something? 
Yeah, exactly. So the system the astronauts used is actually called Veggie, and it's basically an incubator the size of a two-drawer filing cabinet, you know, if you think about something that size. And as you guessed, it's a completely soil-free system. The incubator gives the seeds everything they need to thrive. So that means like water, nutrients, sunlight in the form of these LED bulbs. And, and then the astronauts do their part too, just by exhaling carbon dioxide for the plants to breathe in. So I guess it sort of functions like this little onboard ecosystem. You know, the humans feed the plants, plants feed the people, and so on. Exactly, the circle of life. But, you know, as handy as it is to have a regenerating food source on a spaceship, the real draw of this veggie system is the added texture it provides. And you don't think about this, but, uh, you know, crunchiness isn't typically found in astronauts' diets. That's because, like, crunchy foods like cookies and crackers, they tend to produce crumbs which can be tough to wrangle in zero gravity, but growing produce in space actually solves that problem. So it finally allows astronauts to add some much-needed crunch to their diets. And if you remember from our taste issue, crunch actually plays a role in making us appreciate our foods. Huh. I mean, that, that's something I wouldn't have thought about before. And you think about it, lettuce is about as bland as it gets here on Earth, but in space it's it's kind of like fine cuisine, actually. So, and, and I would have to imagine, you know, we're not stopping at lettuce, though, right? Because it seems like a system like that would work with all kinds of vegetables. That's right. So NASA has a list of about 10 different vegetables they're testing in the same setup. Um, I, I guess future astronauts will be able to look forward to radishes, peppers, and even dwarf tomatoes. Hmm. All right. Well, any Mars-bound astronauts will definitely need a safe place to grow and, of course, even eat the crops once they arrive. And they won't be able to stay on that ship forever. So that leads us to the next engineering problem the crew has to face, and that's how to construct a viable shelter. But thankfully, this is one task they won't have to tackle alone because scientists believe they can offer a mechanical assist in the form of some high-tech construction robots. And there's one promising design. It's a droid named Justin, and that was built by a German space agency called DLR. And I love that it's just called Justin. I don't know why, <laughs> but... Engineers have been working on Justin for about a decade, and during that time, they've gotten the bot to do some pretty amazing things. I was just looking at the list of some of the things that can do. Of course, can use tools, catch flying objects, navigate around these obstacles, as well as shoot and upload photos. It can apparently also make a really good cup of tea or coffee, which seems pretty important when you're in space. But uh -huh. you know what's more impressive is this recent AI upgrade that enables Justin to actually think for itself rather than having to be programmed with these specific instructions in advance. Hmm. So there was an article about this in Wired, and I'll just read you a quote from there. It says, This bot can autonomously perform complex tasks, even those it hasn't been programmed to do. Object recognition software and computer vision let Justin survey its environment and undertake jobs such as cleaning and maintaining machinery, inspecting equipment, and carrying objects. In a recent test, Justin fixed a faulty solar panel in a Munich lab in minutes, directed wow. via tablet by an astronaut aboard the International Space Station. Oh, that's pretty awesome. So, I mean, I guess in theory, astronauts could actually remain in the Mars orbit while supervising Justin's work on the surface below. But assuming we can send a team of robots to build shelters ahead of time for us and also make us cups of tea... You know, what are these shelters supposed to be built out of? I mean, we can get water and oxygen out of the Martian soil, but that's not going to work for building materials like wood or steel, right? Well, no, but there actually is something in the soil that could help with a lot of the construction, and that's sulfur. So I was looking at this study out of Northwestern, and, and they were showing that sulfur can be used in place of water to make this special kind of concrete. 
So th- this is weird to say, but I, I was looking into concrete because of something I was doing on Edison, and I've actually heard of this stuff. Like, I, I feel like it's used in oil pipelines because it uh, resists corrosion better than the regular kind of concrete. Yeah, that's true. And it's been around for decades at this point, but obviously it's never been put to use in kind of this off-world construction. But that could change because these researchers at Northwestern were able to mix up their own batch of sulfur concrete. And to do this, they used this simulated Mars soil. And it has the same chemical and mineralogical properties of, you know, the real stuff that you'd find there. And so when the researchers stress-tested different kinds of concrete, they found that the sulfur concrete made from this Martian soil was actually twice as strong as the sulfur concrete we use to make the these oil pipelines. Really? Like, Do we know what makes it so much stronger? Not exactly, but the team does have a theory. You see, here on Earth, the sulfur in this kind of concrete just serves as a glue for the gravel. But in this case, the sulfur might have formed a chemical bond with the minerals inside that Martian soil. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. So that 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 bond could actually be the reason for the added strength. But actually, the Martian sulfur concrete would be stronger still because the gravity on Mars is just a third of what it is here on Earth. And so really, that would effectively triple the concrete strength on Mars. Huh. So this stuff is definitely strong enough to build a space shelter with. But it, are there any downsides you see here? Like, Or is this pretty much a sure thing? Well, I mean, there is one potential downside, and that's that this form of sulfur concrete is incredibly fast setting. I think it solidifies in an hour or less after it's mixed. But, you know, really that would only be a deal breaker if we plan to mold all this stuff by hand. But what's more likely is that we'd use 3D printing when working with sulfur concrete. And so that way you'd have this robot team that could print as many structures as you needed, and they would use this locally sourced Martian concrete. And then you just slap this airtight membrane inside and you're good to go. I mean, living on Mars just got that much easier, Mango. <laughs> I mean, it it really is like exciting to hear about these ideas. They're so awesome. And I, I do have to say, like, that's one of the best ideas I've heard for surviving on Mars because I feel like before that, everything I read about was like inflatable habitats that NASA was testing. But, you know, for someone like me and my anxieties, I'd never be able to relax in something that's just inflatable, you know, with all those dust storms and like shards of things that sort of seem to like fly around Mars. I'd, I'd be terrified. Yeah, that just might get popped or something. Yeah. But, you know, I, I do think that the threat of sudden extinction would be there no matter what kind of shelter you're in. But I'm with you. I'd rather test my luck in a concrete hut built by these robots than some sort of, I don't know, like a balloon house. Yeah, a bouncy house. (laughs) Right, right. Yeah, I'm going to live in a bouncy house on Mars. But, uh, you know, I've actually heard this other idea that uh, you could have a balloon house inside of an underground lava tube because that's apparently one of the best bets for avoiding the cosmic radiation we've been talking about. I mean, it's just kind of silly. I don't know. This just keeps getting better and better, Mango. I think, <laughs> I think I'm ready to sign up. But you know, seriously, as difficult and potentially terrifying as life on Mars might be, I, I do hope our country stays the course and eventually gets us there safely. Or, or, or not us exactly, but somebody. Other people should definitely <laughs> go Get there. there I mean, personally, <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm staying here where the air and the water don't have to be zapped out of the dirt. But I am 100% for other people taking this trip. <laughs> Yeah, I'm with you. And obviously, like, the the pull to explore is such a deeply rooted part of being human. And backing away from Mars now, when we're finally so close after so many years of dreaming and planning, it really kind of feels like it could be a betrayal of our dreams. Because, you know, if we're not reaching for greatness and planets and stars, like, what are we doing? 
I don't know. I mean, maybe we're listing facts back and forth and some sort of quasi-competitive head-to-head challenge. What do you think? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's not a trip to Mars, but you know I'm never going to turn down the facts off. All right, well, one group that may be eager to get to Mars is mountain climbers. There have been more than 4,000 people to climb Mount Everest so far. But Everest has nothing on Mars's highest peak, Olympus Mons, which is more than 72,000 feet in elevation. Now, that's more than double Everest at its tiny peak of a little over 29,000 feet. And don't worry, NASA actually already has a trail map for those wanting to scope out how they might get to the top. You can find it online. I mean, that's ridiculous that they've created these maps, and it will be interesting to see which Sherpa gets to the top first, but I guess they'll at least have gravity on their side uh, on that planet. But um, speaking of first, did you know that there has already been a first song played on Mars? No. Yeah, so the Curiosity rover on Mars has helped us explore the surface, you know, of the planet, and it's controlled by a team here on Earth. And those communications come in the form of these vibrations, which produce a series of harmonics. Well, you know, typically these harmonics don't really produce anything we'd want to listen to, but on August 5th, 2013, to celebrate one year since Curiosity had landed on Mars, the team sent a series of vibrations which resulted in the playing of Happy Birthday, which seems so sweet until you realize it's probably the loneliest birthday in the universe. (laughs) That's a good point. That's a very good point. All right, well, you know when humans travel to new places, we of course think about what we might be exposed to and of the dangers related to that. But we don't always think about what we might be exposing the new environments to. Thankfully, NASA does think about this because we really don't want a situation where we're introducing foreign microbes that, you know, may take over an environment before we even get to learn anything about it. So there's actually a dedicated department at NASA known as the Office of Planetary Protection, or OPP for short, and that just (sighs) focuses on the policies to assist NASA in preventing those sorts of disaster scenarios. (laughs) So I, I always wondered, is that what OPP in that song stands for? Uh, Yeah, I'm pretty sure that it was. Yeah, let's go with it. (laughs) So one of the other things we might not think about is how much living on Mars would mess with our circadian rhythms. And a day on Mars is approximately 24 hours and 39 minutes. And at first, that doesn't seem like that big a problem. It doesn't seem that far off from Earth. But it would actually be pretty problematic. So the average woman's circadian rhythm lasts 24 hours and 6 minutes. And for men, it's 24 hours and 12 minutes. And again, that doesn't seem far off, but it adds up. And what it really means is that every few days, it would be like traveling west by a couple time zones, which, you know, would be pretty tough on your body. Yeah, I I hadn't thought about that before. When I first saw that 24 hours and 39 minutes, I fell into the same thing, thinking like that wouldn't be a big deal at all. But Mm -hmm. that makes sense. All right, we talked a little bit earlier about the most recent class of NASA astronauts, and it is pretty cool to see that for the first time, half of them are female. And I'm pretty sure cost has nothing to do with it, but it is interesting to note that it would actually be a good bit cheaper to send an all-women crew to Mars. They're lighter on average, which means burning less fuel, and they need fewer calories, which also means transporting less food. I mean, how awesome would that be if like, the first crew to Mars was all women? Wouldn't that be incredible? Be pretty cool. So here's a fact I think is super weird. If you're standing on Mars's equator and measured the temperature at your feet and at your head, you'd find an almost 40-degree Fahrenheit difference. It's about 70 degrees Fahrenheit on the warmer ground and at about 32 degrees Fahrenheit at the top of your head. 
It feels like you'd have no idea what to wear if that was the case, right? <laughs> yeah. You'd well, always say, you'd, you'd yeah. be in like flip-flops and then progressively like colder and colder weather up. <laughs> that would be so weird. All right, well, Mango, I have no idea how we've talked about Mars without making a single bad candy bar joke, so I just want to go ahead and ruin this for us. And I'd <laughs> like to mention that the Snickers bar, which comes in at number eight on my list of best candy bars, was named for a horse owned by the Mars family. So there you have it. <laughs> well, I mean, you did ruin this for us. I love that. I'm going to give you the award. Uh, thank you so much. And thank you guys for listening. I'm sure there are tons of great facts about Mars that we didn't include in today's episode. And as always, we'd love to hear those from you. You can reach us by email, parttimegenius at howstuffworks.com. Or you can call us on our 24-7 fact hotline. That's 1-844-PT-GENIUS. And as always, you can reach us on Facebook or Twitter. But thanks so much for listening. Thanks again for listening. Part-Time Genius is a production of How Stuff Works and wouldn't be possible without several brilliant people who do the important things we couldn't even begin to understand. Tristan McNeil does the editing thing. Noel Brown made the theme song and does the mixy-mixy sound thing. <laughs> Jerry Rowland does the exec producer thing. Gabe Luzier is our lead researcher with support from the research army, including Austin Thompson, Nolan Brown, and Lucas Adams. And Eves Jeffcoat gets the show to your ears. Good job, Eves. If you like what you heard, we hope you'll subscribe. And if you really, really like what you've heard, maybe you could leave a good review for us. Did we, did we forget Jason? Jason who? your diabetes just got easier. The powerful new Dexcom G7 lets you see your glucose numbers on your compatible watch and phone without finger sticks. And because Dexcom G7 is the most accurate CGM system, you can be confident in your food, exercise, and medication decisions. And all those decisions can lead to big results like more time in range and lower A1C. Get started at Dexcom.com. Dexcom data on file 2023. If your glucose alerts and readings from the G7 do not match symptoms or expectations, use a blood glucose meter to make diabetes treatment decisions. For a list of compatible devices, visit Dexcom.com slash If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride-or-die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply.